Talking Movies with Sam and Raj. I'm one of your co-hosts, Raj Sani. And I'm your other co-host, Sam. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, what we do here, we start each and every episode looking into some television and movie news. In the middle of each episode, we review some television and movies as well. And in the final segment of the episode, we do a featured topic discussion. This week's featured topic discussion is going to be a breakdown, recap, and review of the Chicago Bulls ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. Um, But yet in other busy week in Hollywood news, Sam, it just feels like after everything shut down, everybody's just hopping on these Zoom meetings and not really stopping the train in terms of projects that are in development. And we're going to start here with a pretty big one, actually, um, the Snyder Cut, which is the sort of long-rumored, long-gestating uh, director's cut from Z- Zack Snyder of Justice League, which was rumored to have been in development by a pretty small subset of fans, is actually going to be getting released. Um, they're going to be launching this project on HBO Max in 2021. It is going to be Zack Snyder's official director's cut. Um, As I mentioned here at the top, it's sort of in response to the hashtag release the Snyder Cut movement, which has really become a major sort of social media platform as well Um, over the past two to three years since Justice League came out, I believe, in 2017. So since then, and um, there wasn't a lot of um, statements in this press release that came out from Warner Media, but uh, Hollywood Reporter followed up with their own article noting that Warner Brothers could be dropping an additional 20 to 30 million on this cut, and it could be up to four hours long. Um, And that's not to say that it's going to be one movie. It could also be split up into chapters. Um, Actually, before I toss it to you here, Sam, I'll kind of quickly chime in and say um, that that it should be clear before anybody starts to speculate or anything about this, that uh, the reason that Zack Snyder did not get to finish his original cut of Justice League is because his daughter tragically committed suicide. So he had to leave the project. I know at the time there was a lot of rumors uh, circling around about him being fired and whatnot. That is not the case. He was replaced by Joss Whedon because he had to step away from the project for very personal reasons, and understandably so. Um, when Joss Whedon came back onto this project, he reportedly redid like a lot of it, up to like 80 pages in the script, and that that sort of is what sparked the release the Snyder Cut movement. Um, but I'll, I'll toss it to you here first. Um, what, what are your sort of thoughts on the way that social media influenced this decision by Warner Media? And then to follow that up, are you actually even excited for the Snyder Cut? Well, I think it's kind of a compound effect being that Warner Media and HBO saw that there was a demand for this Snyder Cut. And if you go to like their Twitter account and see like their promotional tweets for their movies coming up or any news um, stuff that they put out, you would see on the on the replies being like, release the Snyder Cut, release the Snyder Cut, release the Snyder Cut. Every single tweet, like the commitment for these individuals who did this is incredible because like for the past three years, they've been just spamming Warner Media and like their all other projects and individuals involved with the production of Justice League to release the Snyder Cut. And they haven't stopped until now and this i think with the compound effect i'm insinuating is that they're saying that there is a demand and then there is this um the spamming going on with the replies to their tweets and all that i think they just want to have uh, a huge project to bounce off of with uh hbo max i mean hbo max has had a lot of acquisitions as of right now but they haven't had any you know actual originals if i don't believe besides like the boondocks at the top of my head i'm thinking yeah, about love life with anna kendrick nothing major Right, and so they have this one with a uh, you know huge superheroes. They're coming back with like doing voiceovers and reshooting scenes and doing like the the script that Snyder originally put out before the tragic tra- tragic passing of his daughter. So, mm-hmm. and this sort of insinuates that there was no Snyder cut to begin with because mm-hmm. if they're 
putting out twenty to thirty million dollars. Exactly. That's just saying that there was nothing there to begin with. So I don't know what they're clamoring for, but I mean, right. I think they were just trying to capitalize on whatever is going on around this project and the Justice League as a whole and these and these individuals as a whole. But it'll be interesting, interesting to see. Um, Ben Affleck, even himself, like Ben Affleck, Jason Momoa, uh, Henry Cavill, and uh, Gal Gadot, they all tweeted out, released a Snyder cut, and they were all in support of. Uh, the movement and there's like mm-hmm. a there's like a, huge, a little bit of a dual meaning behind the movement. One being that they actually want to see the Snyder Cut, but then the other one being that they were trying to put light on like uh, suicide awareness. So which mm-hmm. is kind of a cool thing if you knew about that. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was kind of mixed on Justice League when I saw it. You know, I thought it was a bit of a mess considering all the production flaws that it had. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had a yearning to rewatch it since I saw it in, out in theaters, but I didn't, not to say that I didn't, I hated the movie, but it, I, I'm interested to see how Zack Snyder comes back and see if he either confirms what he was trying to do originally, or he, he has like new ideas for Justice League as a whole. Sure, and I think you touched on something very, very important in that statement, is the fact that the Snyder Cut... Um, there was a lot of clamoring for it, but I don't think that there was an actual quote unquote Snyder cut. I think Zack Snyder had a cut, but it wasn't mm-hmm. a finished cut. Um, right. And that was actually, you know, that th- that's clear, like you said, from the, the millions and millions of dollars that Warner is shelling out for this thing, as well as in this Hollywood Reporter um, sort of article that there's report or they state that, that Warner went to the Snyders, uh, Deborah and Zna- Zach, and they asked them, you know, is this something that you guys are actually willing to do? So even if Zack Snyder had his own cut, Warner never really had any sort of plan to release that thing. So that that was sort of just Zack Snyder doing his own thing on his own time. And I, and I think that is part of what this um, sort of hashtag movement was uh, shooting for. I think they were trying to get Zack's official director's cut out there, um, whether or not Warner was supporting that or not. And um, and I think it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of of two different minds about this, because I think in one sense, it is very, very risky to have mm-hmm. a fandom dictate what a studio does. Right. Um, studios are, but at the end of the day, studios are a business, and they have to satisfy their viewers. Mm-hmm. And and that is that is what they're doing here. The release of Cider Cut is a passionate, passionate, pretty large following. And, and if they are going to make money off of this, it's a smart business decision for Warner and HBO to go ahead and do this. Um, I also think that as most fandoms, there is a very toxic sort of element to to the hashtag release the Snyder Cut movement. But I don't say that to generalize the fandom because I think that that's in all fandoms. And I think also... I think that the media has kind of spun that movement into a much more negative thing than it actually is. There mm-hmm. is a group of people that are very toxic in that group. There are also a, a very large and uh, vocal uh, part of that group that are doing very good, like you said, doing the, the charity for suicide prevention and whatnot. That's something that I had heard about relatively recently that I wasn't aware about, but that's because you know the media hasn't really given that element of the Snyder Cut movement the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And to, to learn about that, I, I kind of... I, I sort of sympathize with them. And at, at the end of the day, fandom fandom brings people together. And I think what a lot of the sort of mainstream media outlets and bloggers and critics and whatever you want to call them, what they're kind of doing is they're sort of not even just with the Snyder Cut, but, you know, Star Wars, Marvel, they kind of like to jab at fandom mm-hmm. and, and fandom at the end of the day, it brings people together. And I feel like those those people that are attacking these fandoms are trying to tear people apart. And I feel like that's the wrong way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I want to emphasize the fact that I understand that not everybody in this movement is good, but there is a lot of good in this movement. Mm. Um, 
that all said, I'm not really interested in this cut. I didn't like Justice League. I didn't like Batman vs Superman. I rarely like Zack Snyder's movies. I did like Man of Steel. Um, and I do like his Dawn of the Dead remake from, what, like, 2004 or whatever. Right. So I think he has some talent, but I haven't liked anything outside of that. I didn't like Watchmen. Um, I don't like 300. Uh, I, I just I don't care for his movies all that much, and I don't think that his cut of this movie is going to change my opinion on it, especially because I do respect Joss Whedon quite a bit. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm happy for the people that positively tried to support this movement and tried to get this movie out there and support Zack Snyder as a filmmaker, because as we said at the top, he, he went through a lot of tragedy, he went through hard times, and, and he's sort of trying to bounce back from that, and I think that, that giving him that opportunity here is, is a good good move by Warner Media. Well, one thing I'm hoping to come, that comes out of this is a more traction for the Superman, the Man of Steel sequel that I've been clamoring for for the longest time. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that you know they reshoot the scenes with Henry Cavill with a shaved face this time, hopefully, <laughs> that it gives him more uh, appeal to portray Superman again. Because I watched the first three episodes of The Witcher, I did not like The Witcher at all. Mm-hmm. It was a chore to watch, and I'm hoping that just he bounces back to being Kal-El and the DCEU. I'm 100% on that train. I, I do want a Man of Steel too, because Man of Steel is my favorite movie, like by far, in the DC universe. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually think that movie is actually really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do need to revisit it. It's been a while, but I, I remember loving it both the two times that I saw it. But I agree with you. Um, I hope that, and, and Zack Snyder's version of it is is seemingly going to be pretty different from Joss Whedon's. So they will right. probably go back, and that's where this 20 to 30 million is going towards. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you remember during the promotion back on in 2017, where they was shooting like scenes with Superman in his black and mm-hmm. gray um, Superman suit. Mm-hmm. Never, that never came out in the in the movie. So I'm hoping nope. that kind of <laughs> brings back uh, uh, Zack Snyder to put that idea back into the movie or yeah, the it, it, or whatever. And when Zack was still working on this, reports are that he went to Warner with like a four-hour cut of a Justice League movie. Again, it's not it was not the cut that he's this final cut. It was just a cut of the movie. Uh, and, so is that fact, where people were just saying release that cut and we want that cut? Uh, I think so, but there, okay. I think that's that's again where the confusion comes from. It was it was a cut of the movie, but it was nowhere near the finished cut of what he was trying to put out. And you know, he he trimmed it down even while he was still working on it. But it, it just didn't get to the point where he was able to put out the version that he wanted to work on. And then Josh Whedon mm. came in and reshot a lot of it and redid a lot of it. So there are there are clear differences here from what we got. And I, I guess I'm just interested to see, like I said, I'm sort of of two minds of this entire situation, because while I'm happy for a certain subset of people and a group of people that are out there doing good, there are also people that were pretty manipulative and pretty hostile out there in society. And I just hope that this doesn't become a trend of, you know, release the David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad, blah, 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 blah. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm just hoping that it's pretty much what I said before being that of the demand, but also where they just want to capitalize on the on the you know the popularity of the DCEU and hoping to bring it back into the good graces of moviegoers. Yeah, which makes complete sense. Um, let's get into the next thing here. Um, Adam Sandler is teaming up with LeBron James for a Netflix movie titled Hustle. Um, this is coming from We the Animals director Jeremiah Jeremiah Zagar, um, and it's being penned. The script is being penned by uh, writers Taylor Matern and Will Fetters. Um, the script is being described by Variety as following an American basketball scout who, after being unjustly fired, discovers a talented player abroad and decides to bring him back to the U.S. to prove they both have t- what it takes to make it in the NBA. Um, This is sort of part of Sandler's overall deal with Netflix. I guess, you know, he's been making quite a few movies with them, but this is a little bit of a change up where he's not necessarily doing a strict comedy. He's teaming up with LeBron James and LeBron's business partner, Mav Carter. 
and producing something more sports-minded, a little bit more <clears throat> serious. Um, does this sound excited to you? Because I know Uncut Gems was one of your favorite movies last year. Yeah, I love Uncut Gems. I was hoping this could be like a spiritual sequel to Uncut Gems, but I'm considering all the movies that he's already put out and all the projects he's put out with Netflix and how they've all been like awful, awful, awful movies. Like they've been panned. No one likes them. No one's talked <laughs> about them. People just completely forget about those movies. But I'm hoping with like the, you know, LeBron James and, Ma- and Mav Carter being attached to this, it kind of elevates it in a, in a way of that in, in, in like a same as the uncut gems was with the safety brothers mm-hmm. um is lebron james a part of the like you know he's an actor he was in um train was wreck. a train wreck the yeah. judd apatow movie um yep. is he acting in this one i don't not not at least at this point okay so that was what i was confused about i was thinking that adam sandler being the scout and lebron james being the talent <laughs> that would I mean, be ridiculous because <laughs> <laughs> lebron james is 35 now so. yeah exactly <laughs> Um, but, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this one turns out well because I think Adam Sandler is a talented guy. Mm-hmm. He just likes to do shitty movies because, I don't know, that's just the type of guy he is. But he does have talent and hoping that with LeBron James and Mav Carter and, you know, with Netflix, they can put out a good movie. Yeah, um, LeBron and Mav Carter, if you don't follow, like, what Uninterrupted and what Spring Hill are doing pretty closely the way that I do as a hardcore LeBron fan, like, they're, they're doing some really interesting stuff, and a lot of their um, their projects are pretty socially minded, and they're, they're, they're focusing on topics that I think are pretty important, whether it be the I Promise School that LeBron James started, or, you know, going back in time and telling the stories of significant African-American figures in history, um, or even something like The Shop on HBO, which is one of my favorite things on TV right now. Um, I love what those two are doing and them coming and teaming up with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler's been circling this project for quite a bit of time, from what I understand, maybe since, like, back in October or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it didn't really get the traction now that LeBron James has teamed up with him on it. I think that's why it's really moving forward. Um, I'm also interested to see what the writers here can do, because I, I, I haven't seen We the Animals, but I understand that Jeremiah Zagar did an incredible job directing that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the writers are what, really what interests me, because Taylor Matern, um, I believe from my research, he's a writer on, like, the 2K games. So, you know, he's got a bit of a basketball mind, but he hasn't really done any feature film writing. And I think the script was originally his. And then um, Will Fetters came on. Will Fetters was one of the guys who helped co-write A Star is Born, the most recent A Star is Born. Um, But his track record is more sort of like rom-coms and romantic dramas and stuff like that. And he did like a polish on this script. So that that is a bit interesting to me, that team up. but but I think you know him come Sandler coming off the heels of Uncut Gems is really what excites me about this. Um, another dramatic role, another basketball role. Um, I just think that 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 sort of is a match made in heaven after watching Uncut Gems and, mm-hmm. and that that much alone I'm excited about. What I'm interested to see um, from what I read is that this script was originally set in China and it was about following a Chinese street uh, street basketball player. Um, so I'm interested to see if if that continues to go forward, obviously with the coronavirus situation being pretty um, severe out in China, I think they've got it a little bit more controlled in a lot of parts now, but I wonder if people will be hesitant to fly out there and actually shoot movies at this point. Right. Um, it might be down the road. And also the NBA kind of shook up their relationship with China earlier mm-hmm. on the season. Um, and LeBron James clearly said some things that might've set off some people in China. So that, that is interesting to see. I wonder if they'll actually change the locations for it. Mm. Uh, but that being said, the the basic conceit of this has me very, very excited. 
Yeah, I mean, if you've seen We the Animals, We the, Anim- we the Animals being one of my favorite movies that came out, I think it was 2018, like it was like my number 20 of that year, and it tells the story of this kid who just comes to terms with his, you know, ab- abusive relationship with his with his parents and, you know, his budding relationship with his uh, brothers and this guy that they found, like this friend that they found in their neighborhood, and it just tells him and how he comes to terms with like his sexuality, his, his imagination, his, you know, growing apart with his brothers and trying to realize the world that he lives in and trying to come to terms with how to portray himself as an individual and i think it was you know a, a great watch very underrated like no one really saw it mm-hmm. but um if that if he's the one who's um directing this movie it gives me more uh optimism to see adam Sandler come with another great basketball movie yeah and i would imagine that you know with him being the director on this although lebron and adam sandler are attached i still would imagine that he's going to keep it a bit more smaller scale like something like we the animals because that you know although that was his breakout directorial effort um it, it's still a pretty small movie from what i understand i think you could probably speak to that a little bit better since you saw it mm-hmm. but um but you know he'll probably keep it more rooted in character which that film seems to be going from what from what you've described and what i've read about it yeah i mean it's a completely different from it's like a small indie drama film this is more of a i would guess a co- comedic drama movie considering mm-hmm. it's adam sandler and lebron james yeah so it'll be interesting to see how he tackles that genre as opposed to what, we, what he did with uh, we the animals yeah, I'm really excited for this. I hope this gets into production soon because I really want to see this, especially because it's going to be on Netflix. We'll be able to see it from the comfort of our own home. Mm-hmm. Um, next up on the docket, we have The Five Bloods, which is the new Spike Lee movie, which we talked about a few weeks ago. We talked about the plot and the sort of cast, but we got our first official look at the trailer um, just for a little bit of a refresher. It's about uh, a few African-American vets who go back to Vietnam to, to look for the remains of their um, sort of captain of their squad, as well as some gold treasure that they hid. Um, And I'll I'll start off by saying I think that this trailer is incredible. It looks right sort of right up what Spike Lee is best at being very stylized, but very rooted in um, very serious matters. And I think what what really caught my eye, you know, is right off the bat when you have that person at the beginning speaking about this sort of um, this tension. And I think this is something that Spike Lee has talked about this movie specifically as well of these, um, you know, these people. When, when the Vietnam War was going on, and even up until now, sort of the tensions that we've seen in our country, this sort of dispute between, um, you know, African-Americans who have to go and fight for a country that doesn't always support them. And, you know, this is something that's in the news now just as much as it is ever. And and I really think that Spike Lee, there, there's no better filmmaker to touch on that topic than Spike Lee. And this, mm-hmm. this trailer really <clears throat> sold me on that because it's bringing, again, those serious and very potent and um, poignant issues, bringing it to Spike Lee's sort of stylistic, you know, very um, unique and throwback style and, and you know with the change in aspect ratio and whatnot it's got an apocalypse now vibe it has apocalypse now uh, callback right at the beginning of the trailer uh, everything about this sold me even more than everything that I was reading about it I'm interested to see what this turns out to be because the shifting aspect ratio is something that caught me off guard I wasn't expecting to see how the the shots from the past with Chad, Chadwick Boseman's character and then the shot the shots in like the present time being normal digital uh wide 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 uh widescreen aspect ratio as opposed to like the really taut square aspect ratio sure. that we saw in the trailer um I, I'm just to see how that kind of pans out because I wasn't a huge fan of it watching the trailer but the you know the music of it was pretty good you, you talked on the apocalypse now and they're both movies set in Vietnam and I think he was just trying to make an homage to a movie that probably 
hopefully um, gave my ideas to how to tackle this this uh, story. But the thing that interests me most again is something that I talked about in the last episode when we were, when this movie was announced is the character dynamics with uh, all these characters. Like you have uh, Jonathan Majors and Chadwick Boseman and uh, Michael K. Williams and a bunch of other, these other actors that I'm blinking on right now. But I want to see how that turns out because there's there's a there's a camaraderie between like the older actors in the movie and there's also the the dynamic between i think it could be one of the characters sons or uh yeah jonathan majors yeah he's one of the characters right so i want to see how that turns out and how the experiences from the vietnam war kind of parallels to the experiences of jonathan majors character being now something that you just touched on and seeing how that juxtaposes with each other with uh, race relations and all that um you know it's something that spike lee isn't averse to like it's uh pretty much a staple in all of his movies so i'm really interested to see how it turns out i'm hoping that the aspect ratio doesn't turn me off when i'm watching the movie that comes this comes out next month on june 12th yep june right? 12th netflix june 12th so we'll see how that turns out i'll give my review when we watch it <laughs> awesome uh so yeah tune in june 12th for our review that's just a couple of weeks here so that we'll talk about that very very soon and i'm really excited because i've heard i've heard it's incredible so i'll say that much here um let's finish up the news sort of main topics here and talk about that tenant trailer that just came out um you know this is a trailer that we've been waiting for for quite a bit of time i think the last one came out right before rise of skywalker so in december um so this is our first real big look at it since you know in, in almost six months now and um I'll, I'll start off by saying i think that this trailer is as you know it's exactly what you expect of christopher <laughs> nolan it looks big it looks insane it looks incredible but you basically have no idea what's going on and, and that's kind of what i love about christopher nolan that's what his best movies are and um you know myself being the biggest Christopher Nolan fan that I, I that I know he's my favorite director working today I'm not ashamed of it at all and, and I, I just can't wait for this thing because this trailer you know I, I might be biased I, I don't care if I am because this thing sold me even more than I was already sold on it well the same thing with uh, what Robert Pattinson said in an interview I think with uh, Seth Meyers I believe it was he said like the one thing that he could talk about about the movie was that it's not about time travel and they actually even say that in the movie like, no it's not time travel it's like time regression or time manipulation or whatever it is yep. it is that they said in um I'm really glad we got the chance to see the prologue in the IMAX theater that well, you convinced me to go watch. And so, yeah. because like we got, we got touches of this from this trailer, from the prologue, but the prologue itself is like fucking fantastic. I, I love that prologue. I'm glad I went to go rewatch Rise of Skywalker, you know, and how much I am a mix on that movie. I'm really glad I watched <laughs> it because of the prologue of Tenet. So yeah, I still have no idea what this movie is about. Can't speculate, can't theorize, but I'm really excited to watch it. And I'm hoping, I don't know how the, the the how they were gonna put this movie out on because Chris Nolan still hasn't pushed the date back. He's hoping that people will be able to go watch it in theater theaters in July. And um, well, I mean, I guess he's just trying to capitalize on it being the only movie being out at that time. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think people are blowing that sort of release date a little bit out of proportion just because we're still like two months away from July 17th. And I understand the marketing aspect of it that you know there are certain marketing marketing schemes that go into all of that. And this trip trailer does not outright say it's coming july 17th right. which indicates to right. me that it is going to get pushed they just haven't accepted that yet mm -hmm. or they haven't really publicly noted that yet but um I, I think the fact that they have two months they're just waiting till they get closer to the that date and i, I would expect by mid-june when we're about a month out from this we will have a firm answer and i do expect that answer for it to be delayed unfortunately um but that is what's best for society right now mm -hmm. that all said like you know outside of the, the sort of release of that and, and sort of speaking to what you're talking about, like the sort of time manipulation aspect of it, I think that that's something, you know, that that's something, it's not even, I think it's it's a very clear fact of everything 
that Christopher Nolan does kind of explores time in some way. That mm-hmm. is something that both Chris Nolan and John Nolan are very, very interested in, and that's something that they try to put into every single one of their movies, whether it be the sort of ticking clock of Dunkirk or the time travel, quote-unquote, aspect of um, Interstellar. That's something that they want to go for. That's something that they're trying to do. And this this is very different, I think, from that aspect of the time travel because it is manipulation. And, and kind of what really stood out to me about this trailer and something that I can't wait to see is like behind the scenes featurettes of the making of this movie because mm-hmm. as we've talked about, Chris Nolan does everything practical. And I can't wait to see him doing these sort of reverse things practically. Because like, you know, that scene where the car flips and then flips back over. I want to see how he achieved that practically. And I know there's a little bit of special effects that'll go into that. But like, even if you want to think about like the plane sequence at the end where the plane is crashing into that hangar like right. that's probably something that christopher nolan actually did he probably had like a bunch of cars pulling this massive plane into a building and crashing it down i just can't wait to see the behind the scenes making of this movie yeah i'm, I'm actually surprised you haven't talked about one thing that you know we've talked about in the past before and that being a uh, elizabeth the becky we've seen more of in this trailer I um I am excited for that. I still don't know if we've heard her talk. Maybe like a line in this trailer. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard her actually speak, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we do get to see Robert Pattinson speak in this trailer. I don't think we had yeah. seen him speak up to this point. People are like speculating, is he like a ghost or something? And I, I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm curious to see if Robert Pattinson is this quote unquote tenant, because I don't know what a tenant is. And from the trailer, it seems to me that it, it's this sort of idea of, um, of the time manipulation, whatever it is that's making time being manipulated is a tenant mm. a person maybe that can manipulate time and i'm okay. wondering if that's what this robert pattinson character is something implanted in john david washington's head or something this sort of figure because he's interacting mostly with john david washington not as much with other characters um i think there's a scene where he interacts a little bit with Hamish patel who's also in this movie but i i i, I just again i just don't know a whole lot from what this trailer is giving us and or that, I'm or it could be just that. like it could be just uh, Christopher Nolan putting himself into the movie as Robert Pattinson. <laughs> I've seen I've, <laughs> I've seen, seen a lot I've of seen the memes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is very true because he's got like the the Chris Nolan like comb over and the signature like gray suits and all that kind of right. stuff and the scarf. <laughs> so is that what you want to see out of this thing? That'd be insanely meta. I don't know if we, I don't know if even Nolan could pull that off, honestly. <laughs> I, I if there's only if there's one director that can pull it off is Christopher Nolan, um, but I guess I'll I'll just close this discussion off by saying it sounds like both of us are as excited as we've ever been for this thing. We don't know when it's going to quite come out. We still don't know really anything about the movie, despite the fact that both of us have seen that prologue. Um, but but this trailer just you know it completely sold us even more than we were already sold on it. So yeah, it's um, Chris Nolan. So I mean exactly. You asked for exactly. <laughs> was your number three most anticipated, if I'm not mistaken, or two? It was number three. Number three, okay. Behind Dune, and what was the last one? It was uh, the James Bond. James Bond 25 was number two. Okay, so mine was, my number one was Soul, my number two was this, and then my number three was Dune. So, you know, it's right right. It's right up there in our top three most anticipated. Um, mm-hmm. Let's get into reviews now. And you you went back in time and watched a couple of different things this week, didn't you? Yeah, I talked to you about this uh, off recording last week where I was going to go back and see the movies that I haven't seen on the IMDb top 250. I got I picked, I picked pulled these out of the top 100 because uh, I filmed my account. I follow on Instagram, put these out saying, have you seen these movies? And I'm like, wait, I haven't seen this one. I haven't seen this one. I've seen people talk about this movie. And um, the two movies I saw this week were Leon the Professional and Harakiri. So the first one I'm going to touch on is Leon the Professional, which is the number 27, I believe, on the IMDb top 250. And um, I enjoyed it for what it was i think it was pretty good uh you know i mean natalie portman's debut being fantastic she's an incredible actress and you know you saw this right out the offset with this movie and um 
Gary Oldman giving a really campy performance. I love Gary Oldman, and I don't care what anybody says about this performance. <laughs> it's not as bad as people say it is. It's and, crazy. Uh, and, and Gene Reno being a great performer in this movie as well, bouncing off Natalie Portman and Gary Oldman's characters. And, you know, Luke Besson has his own visual style he portrays his movies on. And I think this is the first one I've actually seen in full. Like, I'm, I'm aware of the movies he's made. I've seen clips. I've seen stills. I've seen reviews of his movies. But this is, like, the first one I saw in full. And um, I think... The more problematic aspect of this movie is what caught me off guard, mm. considering how popular it is and how much people regard this movie, because there's a huge story plot of, of the these two characters. So essentially, this movie is about, if you haven't seen it, um, it is about a hitman who takes in um, his neighbor who mm. has his, who has her family killed and like not in front of her, but like killed um, off screen, not off screen. How would, how would I say this? She's just, she was, she was, she was away from her house. Her family's killed. She comes back. She sees the family and she goes to her neighbor being Gene Reno's character, knocks on his door saying, please help me, please help me. And through that, it devolves into a relationship between him trying to um, raise her as his hitman reluctantly and her trying to find her way in the world to say, mm-hmm. but the one aspect is just, it's so pedophilic. Like, yeah, a little bit. It's, yeah. A, it's like not even a little bit. It's like really out there. Like there's, <laughs> there's a scene where Natalie Portman is like reenacting these characters to give like they're bored and like they're in this hotel to run run away from these like mob not, not, like these crooked cops, the DEA agents they're running away from being Gary Oldman's character and, and his crew. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like portraying herself as like this very promiscuous Marilyn Monroe character, and then like, there's the other characters are kind of like it's just so fucking weird. And I, like there's this thing like like I want to be your lover. Kiss me and like he's like no this is bad this is wrong and i'm like Mm -hmm. and i was reading like trivia about this movie and in the extended cuts their relationship does become sexual like this is a little like when she was cast she was 11 years old and the movie was shot she was 13 gene reno being in his 40s when this movie comes out kind of i'm trying to wrap my head around what purpose does this plot point serve to the story outside of being its shock value you know what i mean yeah Uh, i think so like so I, I I certainly agree with what you say, and I have also heard the rumors, even more so than like an extended cut. Like I heard when this movie was originally sort of being formulated, um, mm-hmm. it was you know it was supposed to be a even more romantic sort of relationship between the two characters. I, I'm not entirely sure if the character was actually supposed to be as young as she is, like ten ten to twelve somewhere in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so maybe she was supposed to be a little bit older, but I think it was still supposed to be technically an inappropriate relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you know Natalie Portman came in and she. She was she was even younger than I think they were expecting. Um, that that's sort of my complication with Luke Besson as a director. Outside the fact that I don't necessarily love his movies at, outside of this one, because I actually do really like this movie a lot. Um, despite what what you just said, which I completely agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the sort of hitman aspect of this, um, the assassin aspect of this, really really works for me, and I think it's very tense and very well directed. Um, but Luke Luke Besson is a controversial figure. You know, he's he's sort of been affected by the Me Too movement and whatnot. And I think that 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 way that he portrays Natalie Portman in this movie can can very well be questioned. Um, this is a movie that I haven't seen in about ten years, so I'd have to go back and see. You know, is it really that explicit? But it sounds like from what you're saying, it is. Yeah, kind of. It kind of made me squeamish watching this movie. And then, um, you know, I was reading the. So she is supposed to be 12 years old based on the script, and okay. she was cast as an 11 year old. They shot her when she was 13, and then the extended cut, it, it does become sexual. Like they do what they're not supposed to do and like something that's very you know i kind of i'm just like it kind of 
throws me off that this movie is so popular. Like it's number 27 on the IMDb Top 250. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely seen movies that are better than this. Sure. I, I think it's because it's an accessible <laughs> it's an accessible movie, which um, sort of explores the, um, like I said, the hitman and the assassin sort of lifestyle. And I think that a lot of people are attracted to those sort of movies, um, especially when they're grounded in a certain level of reality. Like John Wick is not grounded in a certain reality. So I think that's why it sort of distances itself, despite the fact that people still love those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what this movie does is it does ground in a very, very real world. And um, when you can sort of relate on a, on a human level to somebody like uh, Jean Reno's character, who is a hitman and an assassin, um, I think that sort of creates a connection between the audience. And, and you noted at the top of this that this was on the IMDb top list. Um, I, I don't know if this movie is quite as critically regarded as the IMDb list. Because, you know, like the IMDb list. Is um, user. Yeah, it is. It's all user reviews. And, like, the superhero movies will end up in the top 10s, top 25s. And that and most, like, critical um, sort of list would not be the same. And I think that, like, critics and film journalists and bloggers nowadays would be the ones to jump on the sort of the political aspect of this movie before regular audiences does that make sense well i'm glad you brought that up because my second movie being harakiri is like 100 percent of rotten tomatoes and 94 percent of metacritic and i think this movie is a complete masterpiece on a commentary of bushido code hypocrisy and the era of the edo period so i'm gonna go ahead and get into that review we'll leave leon because it's kind of getting running long but, but um sure. harakiri is about a uh, masterless samurai known as a ronin back in the times of the Edo period of Japan. This movie is set in 1630. It came out in 1962. Um, I think the director was a uh, Masaki Kobayashi. Yes, and the and the and the main character being Tatsuya Nakarai. And I just this movie is incredible from the set design to the panning of the shots to the settings to just the the acting, the writing, the it's 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 a, it's a masterpiece in and of itself. But the thing that caught my 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 eye most from this movie is it's not a particular typical samurai movie because Kobayashi famously is a pacifist. So he was using this movie as a way to make a commentary on samurai and the Bushido code and the way it was viewed back in the day. And this is kind of like a, goes against the grain of how samurai movies were perceived even back then. Mm. And um, so it's to say that like I'm, I was talking about being the thing that caught my eye was the way that these characters interacted with each other. Like there's a lot of, close-ups to their faces there's a lot of zoom-ins there's a lot of extended dialogue sequences it's not something i was expecting out of this movie i was expecting a very campy samurai you know you know just like swords clinging against each other and you know over dramatized score and like the score is very like sparse throughout the movie but when it's used it's used so effectively that it just transports you to this time and place of you know japan and you know the the set does not even um the set design um the set pieces where they they actually do there are there are several fight sequences in this movie two two big ones at the very end of the movie and there's a great plot twist and it's just like I just love 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 this movie. Yeah, let me ask you quickly before we move on to the the next stuff. Um, because you had not seen any Akira Kurosawa things before coming to this, I'm curious how that sort of shaped your perception of this movie. Because, I mean, you've clearly seen samurai movies, so that that's not the problem here. But it's, you know, going back in time and seeing some of these samurai classics. And I think Akira Kurosawa is known for that genre more than any other director. I'm just curious how you sort of approached this, how you went into this movie, and whether or not, you know, that changed your perception as to how you want to go into Akira Kurosawa's filmography. 
Well, this isn't the character Chris Harley. Are you saying that? Yeah, yeah I'm, sa I'm saying this is not his. So I'm saying how okay. you approach okay. this from something yeah. that isn't his work. Yeah. Well, yeah, just to clarify, this is a Masaki Kobayashi work. And um, yeah, yeah. I was just expecting it more to be like uh, sensationalized for a samurai epic, being like, you know, like, you know, sparsed out samurai battles and samurai code and samurai you know they had the hairstyles and all that but this is more of a commentary on like a more a character focused character centric uh piece on the commentary of samurai and the reason being is i was just like expecting this to be more of a romp and a you know sensationalized fighting sequences and all that and being like you know the like we've heard snippets on like music and all that, and like most famously being like uh, Wu Tang, like into the 30, 36 chambers, and you hear like the very uh, dramatized, you know, people like dying, be like, oh, you got me, and like you, know, you hear the, like the clanging of the swords and like the very, you know, sensationalized aspects of samurai, and that's what I was hope or not hoping, but like what I was expecting, but this being a very character focused, character centric, well regarded, masterful piece by Kobayashi I think when I'm going into um Kirikou Sawa's work I'll be more focused on the character aspect rather than the samurai and the fantastical aspects of Japan back in the day yeah that, that actually perfectly answered my question because yeah what I, what I was trying to say was like how does this perceive or affect the way that you think you might perceive Akira Kurosawa stuff once you get to it because mm -hmm. like I said you hadn't seen any of it and I, what I was going to say is like I think a lot of people even in something like a grand epic like Seventh Samurai people might go into that expecting like big big battle sequences and it does have a battle sequence at the end but mm -hmm. it's far more rooted in sort of character and personal moments and sort of takes his time getting to the point um, so th I'm glad that you sort of took this stepping stone to get there and maybe this will like sort of really spark well, yeah. that interest in you and in going into the Kurosawa now I was going to go and say that I was going to watch Harakiri and Seven Samurai for this week's episode because I just wanted to juxtapose them off of each other. Sure, sure. But, you know, Seven Samurai being three and a half hours long and it'd be mm -hmm. like, it'd be like 9 a.m. 9, 9 p.m. like, I'm going to get out of this movie like at 1, 1 a.m. Like, I'm going to be tired. Like, I want to be loosened when I'm watching this movie. So yeah. that's why I picked up Leon just to juxtapose, you know, Harakiri being like a well-regarded, masterful work that mm -hmm. critics love and then Leon the professional. But I guess at this point being a cult movie just to see how they bounce off of each other and seeing how I could like kind of connect them being on why they're on this list. I'm, I'm excited to check out Harakiri because I haven't seen it and I haven't actually seen any of Masaki Kobayashi's work. So I'm really excited to dive in this one and I'll, I'll probably do it soon since you got the chance to watch it so we can discuss it a little bit more in depth. Okay. Um, I, I only got the chance to see one movie this week because I was watching so much Naruto, but uh, I watched The Lovebirds, <laughs> which hit Netflix uh, yesterday, yesterday, no, to Friday, it's a couple days ago. Um, but this is the, the Kumail Nanjiani Issa Rae-led movie on Netflix. It uh, was originally a Paramount, and they got picked up when all the COVID stuff went down, so it came out like a month after it was supposed to. Um, I'll be pretty quick. Uh, I, I didn't like this movie really at all, mm. uh, which which kind of sucks because this is Kumail Nanjiani reteaming with Michael Showalter who directed The Big Sick, um, and it's just it's not funny to have a uh, Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae leading two very very charismatic leads who have good chemistry together for them to not to be funny it, it really upsets me. Um, this it, something is just really off about what they're doing. It seems very uh, forced, very overstretched. Um, this, the comedy, it just doesn't work. Um, this movie falls flat in all, all regards, in my opinion. That's how it came off to me when I was watching the trailer. Yeah, so, I, um... <laughs> I'm, a sh I'm, I'm really upset because I, I also didn't love the trailers, but because Kumail was reteaming with uh, Michael Showalter, and Michael Showalter has done other good work outside of what Kumail and Emily V. Gordon have written for him because they wrote The Big Sick. So I still went into this with so sort of relatively high expectations, um, but they, they sort of fell flat. Like by the end, I was like checking my phone and stuff. I, I was so completely uninterested. But um, wow. 
I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Let, let's quickly do a quick Naruto plug. Um, sure. Let, let's let's get through this in like about a minute if we can, because like you said, we are running a little bit long here. Um, let us know where you are and what you're sort of thinking so far. I am on episode 260, so they just started the fourth Great Ninja War, and I'm got past. I think when we talked last, we were talking about Jiraiya. I mm-hmm. think at that plot point. So we watched Pain. We've seen the Five Kage Summit. I think that's where you are. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say that I've seen this. Sorry, I've seen this show before. I know what's happening. I know what's gonna happen. I know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But there is an aspect, or like just like recently, where I just like watched it. I think it was two nights ago. I knew what was gonna happen, but for some reason it just hit me so goddamn hard. Mm-hmm. And I actually like I cried and like. This is being like the third anime that made, that's made me cry before. Like I was not expecting that at all. I was like, you know, I know this is gonna happen. I know this is happening. Mm-hmm. Let's get into it. And I got got into the episode. And I was like, fuck, it hit me. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's just to say that I'm really, really, really enjoying my time rewatching Naruto. Being, I'm, I think I'm so glad that I'm justifying myself in this being my number two anime of all time, and this being on my number one. I, don't, I haven't done like the top ten of all time with all shows ever, sure. but I'm, I would say that this is in my top ten of all time. Okay, I I agree with you 100%, and I think that you know both you and I are coming off of the the best arc in my opinion, not just yes. of the show, but you know one of the best arcs in TV of all time, the Pain arc specifically, um, from starting with Jiraiya versus Pain, then um, then you know going from going to Sasuke and Itachi and then sort of capping it all off with the big sort of siege of the Leaf Village, um, that arc is just. It's, it's phenomenal. I, I just don't understand how you can, it, within, you know, somewhere between 20 to 30 episodes, it's not really much longer than that, how you can pack so much incredible emotional material, like I said, from the sort of, you know, the sensei to student aspect at the beginning, and then the brothers aspect at the, in the middle, and the sort of um, new, new student versus old student at the end, like, there's just so much packed into it, and especially, um, I know, I know what you, you've you sort of been saying about the Sasuke Itachi stuff. Um, that, mm-hmm. That's something I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more off air because I don't mm-hmm. want to get into spoilers until we talk, do our spoiler review about it. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there's a – I want to get specifically into the, the sort of end of the pain arc when um, there's a certain moment that happens with Hinata. And that that was yeah. that was the moment that really knocked me on my ass, and I was like, okay, th- this this show is this show is top three for me of all time. Like, I think that's my favorite episode of the entire series so far that I've seen. But like that episode, the next episode, and then the final episode of the pain arc, that sort of three episode stretch, it's I mean, it's it's just incredible. I I just don't understand how how they did that that much that quickly so well uh, i mean this this show is just outstanding and this this arc in particular like you said i i just i'm getting into the five kage summit around about part way through that and sort of the back end of that and um i i'm i'm just as floored as i've I, i'm more floored now than i was the first time i watched all of this. well it's, it's funny that you say that because i wasn't talking about the pain arc at all I was oh, okay. talking. I was talking about um. I just left that for you because I know how much you loved. It. I saw you tweeting about how much you loved it, and I'm with you. I mean, like this is the best. I think this is the best arc of Naruto as a whole, mm-hmm. and um, you know, everything from the scope and you seeing um Naruto like, at his full force and like not, without relying on the nine tails. Well. To, to an extent, and then you just see, like, the incredible animation, and, like, you see, like, the, like, Kobayashi, not Kobayashi, Kishimoto is uh, <laughs> not afraid at all to kill off characters, and he, you see that how he, like, just raises the bar with how well he t- tells these stories. Like, I think Naruto, what, he, what Naruto does best is the way into the last moment 
for you to feel the full impact of a certain sequence. Mm -hmm. So, like, they just take, like, the backstory of a character, or they do a flashback, or they tell the story of some sort of plot point, and, like, they they revamp it, or they retell it, or they give it a new perspective, and you're just, like, trying to, you're juggling these new outlooks along with what's going on on screen at the present moment, Mm -hmm. and he just does that so consistently. It It never feels stagnant, it never feels boring, and it just, it hits you hard every time, but the moment I was talking about was when they're doing the flashback on Naruto's parents. Okay, yeah, that that's part of this sort of episode stretch that I'm talking about. This three episode stretch, the first the first half of it. I'm guessing you've passed the second half of it as I'm, well. I'm I'm talking about the one with his. Uh, I don't want to say it, but like he's training with Killer B to. Oh uh, yeah, I, I know I know happens. what you're talking about. Okay. I know what you're yeah. talking about. Okay. <laughs> but I know what you're talking about this. So we're not gonna put spoilers, but yeah, we're we're both really enjoying our Naruto rewatches, to say in yeah. a sense. <laughs> I I'm not emotionally ready, considering how the first part of that sequence hit me. I'm not emotionally wow. ready to get to that second part that you're specifically talking about. Um, but yeah, well. We'll get into the spoilers once we do that episode, and it seems like it's going to be right around the corner considering how fast we're blowing through this series. Um, But let's get into our featured segment now, and like I said at the top, we're going to talk about the ESPN Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. Um, This is sort of following Michael Jordan's Bulls, um, and he is, I guess, more or less the main character of this documentary, although they're billing themselves as a Chicago Bulls documentary. It's just as much an MJ documentary as it is a Bulls documentary, and it's sort of chronicling his career non-linearly so you're following him sort of at the start and more focused on the 78 7 or 70 97 98 season because that's when they got this documentary crew into the locker rooms to follow their quote-unquote last dance their final season with this team um being of like rodman pippen michael jordan um among many many others but um it's sort of you know it flashes back in time and it comes back to this modern um 97 98 season and juxtaposes different information as to what happened in early on in michael's career and what shaped him to get to that point in 97 98 before they won their sixth ring um so i'll ask you first i guess before we get into thoughts about the 10-part series you know you've talked about your sort of familiarity with basketball and you are a fan of basketball but it's you know it's not your first choice sport it might not even be your second choice sport but it is something you know when it comes to playoff times and whatnot you do watch you do watch the big games but Mm -hmm. like this going on basically when we were born you know we were three years old four years old when this was going down um what was your really familiarity with michael jordan and this bulls team as a whole None at all, honestly. I was just talking about um, with a couple of friends being that, you know, how much do you know about the Bulls and, like, how do you know that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time and what's your expertise with him? My expertise is, like, literally nothing. Like, I just go off based off what other people have said, like, being, like, you know, his stats are crazy. You know, he revamped the Bulls and he had this insane coach. He had these incre- incredible players and the incredible role players and he did two three-peats and, like, that's all I knew about him. I knew he played with the, for the Wizards for a time mm-hmm. and that's really it. Like, I just knew that he was role-regarded as, like, one of the greatest basketball players of all time but I just didn't have a personal uh, rapport with him and in those bulls okay so this was like this was like all new to you pretty much yes then. yes okay. I had no idea like there's aspects of the show that I had no clue about and like mm-hmm. I had preconceptions that were completely blown out so I'm I was like really hoping this I was like really looking forward to this because I had no uh you know I had no exposure to these bulls or MJ as an individual Sure. So, so for me, being like a hardcore basketball fan, which I've talked about plenty on this podcast, and I don't need to get into any further. Um, even for somebody like myself, a lot of this was new. Um, I knew a lot of the on-court stuff. I had seen a lot of these games that they were talking about because, um, you know, if you're if you're a hardcore NBA fan, you have NBA TV. They're they're showing hardwood classics all the time, especially now when there's not any new games. It's all it's all old games. So I I had seen these sort of flashback games of MJ, and I and I knew the caliber of talent 
talent that he was because I had watched his games. Um, but I didn't know any of the backstory and really any of the drama that was going on, especially because like what's so enlightening about this documentary, we have this crew following them throughout this entire season, but there, there was obviously no social media back then. And so like, you didn't get this window into athletes lives. And this, this mm -hmm. is really unprecedented what this documentary crew is able to do. So like, even though I knew some of the off court stuff, like about Michael Jordan's gambling and his father and all that kind of stuff, I, I didn't know quite the extent of it. And so like, even to me, and I think even to people who live through a lot of this stuff, this, this thing was just like, it was innovative in the way that it portrayed a basketball team, a basketball organization, the players, the stars, their sort of place in the entire world of pop culture. Um, there's there's never been quite anything like this, especially in the sports realm, like with a 10 part documentary like this. And, and like the only criticism, the biggest criticism, I guess, that I can make of this documentary is that like they should have done more than 10 episodes because right. there's just like right. there's so much going on here and like. I, I was learning so much each and every episode about what was going on behind the scenes. Again, like I had sat down and watched these Bulls Jazz Finals matchups, and I knew how these games were going to end. I knew the stories, but like I knew the stories of the stuff that was happening on the court. I didn't know the stories that were happening in the locker room, and that that was really impressive about this documentary to me. So, what, what were your kind of thoughts on everything as a whole? I mean, everything that I was hoping to get out of this. Uh, documentary is what I got. I mean, like I got like the insight into MJ. Like, I got the insight to the organization. I like, got the insight to the other players, and it's just like it gave me everything I wanted, and I wanted more because I feel like there was more story to tell. Like beyond the the 98, 97-98 season. Like you know what happened with Jordan with the Wizards. What happened with Scotty when he got traded. What happened with Dennis Rodman? Did he continue playing? Mm -hmm. What happened with Steve Kerr? Did he get traded? What happened with Jerry Krause? What happened with mm -hmm. Phil Jackson? You know, I mean Phil Jackson does go to the Lakers at some point. It was five with Kobe and Shaq, and yep. I knew I knew that. But like it's just like there's so many so much to juggle with this story that there was like i was i wanted more and like i knew like when the the, the 10th episode ended i was like wait that's it <laughs> am i supposed to just google what else happened afterwards sure. like some guy like that doesn't know anything about basketball which yeah. i am but like that's <laughs> no based off the documentary so uh -huh. yeah i, I loved love love this love this documentary it made me itch to go watch the the oj doc that he did a couple years ago that i think won an oscar didn't it yeah yeah it did so I just want to probably, hopefully, maybe about around the time I'm done watching Naruto, I'll probably get into that to get my thoughts on the OJ. But I love this documentary. Awesome. Um, is there like, is there one situation I guess amongst all the crazy stories that they told really stood out to you more than the others? Because like, like I said, like this is all new to basically both of us. But there, was there like anything or any couple situations that you really want to talk about? Well, one thing I thought, <clears throat> I knew that um MJ's dad died during one of the seasons sure. and you know that's the reason he went to baseball i knew that but like i thought he died like a like a heart attack or something like some like cancer or something but like i realized that he was like murdered in his yeah. car by these two yeah. teenagers and like, i was like what the fuck that's insane so like mm. considering their relationship and how prevalent um mj's dad was in his life and how often he attended games and how often he was there during the the championship winning seasons seeing him collapse on the floor and crying Mm -hmm. like that kind of like made me realize what kind how you know how how heavy the loss weighed on jordan like him having the pressure of being the superstar like the greatest player the nba has ever seen mm -hmm. and the superstar around the world and having to have the pressure of winning another championship for chicago and you know him you know having his father as a presence there during those championship winning seasons mm -hmm. was a reason that he was able to do what he's done because of the influence that his dad had in his life so seeing him 
how composed he was throughout the documentary up until that point, being like the very and not enigmatic, but very you know a strong personality. He's very confident. He's very sure what he's doing. He he loves to talk trash, but to see him that vulnerable and to see him like just collapse on the floor and cry with the basketball on the floor was something that really stuck out for me. Yeah, I I agree 100%, and I think that that's something that um that's probably the thing that I appreciated most about this documentary, actually even more than the sort of unprecedented locker room aspect of it, mm-hmm. um because there's something again like when in the age that we live in now we have a window into like basically every NBA player's lives as they live it. And mm-hmm. like, you know, every Tuesday we're in LeBron's kitchen as he screams taco Tuesday. And it's just <laughs> like, that's just normal now. But you know, back then we didn't quite have that insight into players. And for this documentary to uncover a lot of that, I think is very important because what it does, um, MJ was heavily involved in the creation of this documentary and we'll get into like sort of our thoughts with that and you know maybe his the quote-unquote propaganda of it is it really like fair <laughs> to to like just, how, how do you credit this thing if, if Michael Jordan is so heavily involved and, and I get that but but it it's not afraid to shy away from the things that make MJ a controversial figure and while there aren't a whole lot of them there are certainly a few and, and I think that again that the thing that this documentary does so well is it humanizes this person that we all see as this sort of god and mm-hmm. and i think right black jesus them, exactly 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 was it reggie miller right that said that said right. that yeah. spe- uh, specific statement and and i think that's true and you see that like from the first episode when he shows up in paris and there's like, the person who's like micing him up for a talk show is asking him for, for an autograph and the security guard has to like step in and be like no you can't do that like that's right. that's what a phenomenon mj and these guys really were they were superstars they were rock stars and what i loved is like more than that seeing that stuff is seeing these alone moments of of mj like the only solace that he gets in his life is like these hotel rooms when he's on road trips and he's just like in his room smoking a cigar reading a right. magazine or whatever and like that's that's normalcy for him and, and i i just loved how it really humanized him and then yeah going on that that father side of it like you know there there's a controversy controversy there which the documentary touches on about his father's um passing maybe maybe being tied to his gambling problems this documentary also explores kind of in depth and and it's it's kind of brutal to see the way that the merch media tries to portray MJ as having some sort of part in his father's death. And like when you know that's weighing on a person, it doesn't matter what the stardom level of that person is; they're still a human. And and mm-hmm. it, I love that this documentary sort of touched on that aspect and how MJ responded to the media criticizing him in that way. And MJ never really had a tumultuous relationship with media; he always got along well with the media. But this was this was a particularly interesting situation, and and it was just sort of perfectly emblematic of how Michael Jordan could not live a normal life mm-hmm. and how like i think that was part of what lit this fire of fire and motivation in him which is another through line of the documentary and like you know when he got to a certain point he was ready to start winning the media started covering him a certain way and it just sort of drove him to another level um what do you think about that yeah same thing with uh, everything you're saying the, i mean like he's just an individual that we see portrayed off media based off back then and then we're seeing that juxtaposed now with how he was behind the scenes and like with like the locker room scenes and seeing him in his, in his hotel room and i think there was just like uh i think i was just looking for a reason like they said in the document they're looking for a reason to take down black jesus like the fall of a figure is something they just want to use to sell newspapers or sell magazines or whatever it is that they're trying to sell i think they're trying to capitalize off the fact that you know there's these two things happening at once like he has this gambling issue you know he's lost like hundreds of thousands millions of dollars and he has a very you know he said himself that he's just a very 
uh, a competitive, competitive, yeah. Yeah, competitive individual. That's how he framed it. Yeah, he said, I'm but, not addicted to gambling. I'm addicted to competition. Right. So, I mean, but the media spend it as, you know, he has his addiction, he has his issue, and this could be tied to his father. I think they were just looking for ways to sell, like, bring up ratings, you know, sell newspapers, sell, sell whatever they're trying to sell. And I think that was like a way... I think it was just like an awful way to portray what's happening with Michael. Like they didn't take into account that he was just not not a normal guy, but he was an individual. He was he was a man. He was a human, but they didn't treat him that way. They just taught him they taught him like a circus animal, and mm-hmm. they didn't really care what kind of impact that had on, that had on his life. And I think that's something we see even now. People are just like blowing shit out of proportion just to sell whatever it is they're trying to sell. Yeah, and that I mean that could be tied to the thing we talked about at the top of this episode with the Snyder Cut stuff. Right. But um, but I but I completely agree with what you're saying because like w- without this documentary, we we still could have seen Michael Jordan as this sort of above all godlike figure. And this documentary really does. Um, I think you you said it like it it gave us that shot of him crying on the floor of the locker room um after he won the championship that he sort of dedicated to his father. He was wailing. Um, yeah, he yeah he I mean like and that was something that a lot of people said even like like basketball journalists and basketball reporters who were working at the time, um you know and I agree with this like we there are so many of us had seen like images of him on the floor crying with the ball in his hand and right. whatnot right. I, I don't think anybody had really heard like the audio of how loudly he was crying and how emotional he actually was and it, it was just so enlightening and, and that I mean that's just sort of the surface of it all right because it's it's not just touching on MJ and this is where I wish it kind of got into more episodes but. It it does give us a little bit of time with each and every other individual on that team or most of the other individuals on that team and that that sort of leads me to the next thing that i want to talk about is i, I loved the scotty pippen stuff i believe that was episode two that was another one of my favorite episodes of this entire thing mm-hmm. seeing the sort of poverty that he came from and the contract disputes that he went into and how that shaped his playing in the 97 98 season how he decided to get surgery at the beginning of the 97 summer before that season started and then there was a sort of disputes between him and jerry Krause and that sort of tumultuous relationship him saying that I'm never going to be a bull again. I, I loved all that stuff and how, um, you know, just seeing sort of where he came from having two paralyzed people in his poverty ridden household. Um, but what I want to talk about more with you is the Dennis Rodman stuff. Yes, Cause yes. We, we all, we all know Dennis Rodman is, is a character, but like the Vegas adventures, I had no idea that that was a thing. Like, I didn't know that he had just left in the middle of the 97-98 season and went to Vegas, and he told them he was going to be gone for 72 hours, and he was gone for, I think it was like an entire week or whatever. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that this even happened, and like, this could not happen today. Can you imagine what kind of backlash (laughs) a player would get today if they left the season midway through and went to Vegas and just partied with Carmen Electra? And like, it's just ridiculous. It was insane. That might have been my favorite part of this entire series. Yeah, I mean Dennis Rodman is such an enigmatic figure, like with his hair and the way he dresses himself and the way he like he wore makeup like back then. He like he was like a bit of a trendsetter. Like he, you can probably say like the Russell Westbrook and James Harden based their looks off what Dennis Rodman did back yeah. then, like with his and hair and all down. that. Like, was that? I said they're like toned down compared to. Him. Oh no, exactly. And then like he went to fucking wrestle WrestleMania, or whatever it was, in the middle of a yeah. playoff game or a playoff series, and just to like just to have fun. But like that's the individual he was. It was like, great to see how. You know, how how his character contrasts with Scotty and MJ, who was completely devoted to basketball. And this guy was like, you know, I'm the guy who I am off the court, but when I'm on the court, I gave 100%. And we saw that with, like, the stats they put out. Like, he was, like, averaging 25 fucking rebounds a season. That's insane to me. Like, he was like, getting, like, zero points, but getting, like, 25 rebounds and playing for 25 minutes. Some, something insane like that. And he was, like, an individual that I 
knew about kind of because of just like the pictures I've seen of him. But just put it into perspective, the way that the documentary did kind of brings to light what kind of individual he is and like why he's best friends with a North Korean dictator. It makes complete sense. <laughs> <laughs> is there um is there anybody else maybe or any other storylines that like really jumped out to you as surprising or something that since you didn't know much about this? Well, I'm glad they brought up the Steve Kerr stuff because. Yep. They even asked him when they were shooting the documentary being that they're both individuals who whose fathers were murdered. And like they asked him, like, uh, have you talked to Michael about this? And he's like, no, I think it's too personal. I think it hurts too much. And I think just to give him that spotlight concerning what he's done as a coach in, and as a player, I think it's something that was like, you know, very responsible of the, of the doc- documentarians and MJ to give him that uh those those few minutes in that one episode i think it was like the ninth or eighth episode it was just to give give us that perspective on steve kerr and how his time as the bulls influenced him as an individual and how he has transformed from the player of the bulls as a role player to like maybe one of like the best coaches and that we've seen in the nba we've seen him compared to phil jackson and doc rivers and uh, i'm just glad they gave they gave him that spotlight yeah, I, I agree 100% because, yeah, that, that was something they had sort of planted the seeds for that, I think, in, like, episode 7, and I think that the Steve Kerr-focused episode was in 9, I believe, but, like, they planted the seeds saying that, like, you know, he was sort of going at it with MJ in practice, and, and mm-hmm. it sort of seeded this respect for him in MJ's mind where this guy's not going to take shit from me, and and I respect that because that's what MJ respected. It was it was competition. It was competitiveness. It was people with an edge. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of planted that seed, and then, yeah, it sort of took that the full route and then it, it, I think it does extend outside of the documentary as well. You alluded to it with his time with the Warriors because that Warriors team is the is the closest comparison that we've gotten to the Bulls team. And, and the sort of biggest knock on that Warriors team is the fact they didn't win the ring, even though they had the better record than the Bulls in, in 2016 it was um, when they won 73 games. Yeah. So, so you know that that aspect of it is interesting, but it's also interesting to see sort of what what mentality Steve Kerr took from that Bulls team as a player and brought to that Warriors team as a coach against thinking outside the documentary because he's dealing with a lot of dynamics of players similar to that team that he played on where you have Draymond as sort of your um, your uh, Dennis Rodman, Rodman and then uh, yeah. Clay Thompson is the sort of second fiddle Scottie Pippen who could be an All Star leading guy on any other team, but he sort of plays second fiddle to Steph Curry and and a lot of people say the Steph Curry in that season is the most dominant that we've ever seen a player be since MJ and and sort of his later years in the league. Mm-hmm. Um and and I just love to see that sort of what he took from his time with that Chicago Bulls team and sort of has carried with him through his entire life. Um. Something else that I really love them touching on is is Michael Jordan's break, because I think this sort of ties into his sort of like humanizing aspect of it and Mm -hmm. and the sort of media media frenzy of it all, because, um, uh, you know, he loved baseball and he had a passion for baseball. And there's been talks about, you know, whether or not David Stern kicked him out of the league and that they're touching. They touch on this a little bit Mm -hmm. in this documentary, but um, they they, they continue to deny that. And I think what at the end of the day, it's, it's still like, you know, MJ had just gone to three three finals in a row and was coming off of this stuff with his father and whatnot. And um, there was just so much going on there. And he, he wanted to sort of dedicate his time in baseball to his father because his father also loved baseball. But um, it was also like he just needed a break from it all. And I, I'm, I'm glad they sort of touched on that aspect of it. But they also touched on him, you know, sort of coming into the league, starting off hot, and then people started to go after him because they noticed that he was, um, he was, he was playing well. And then, you know, he started to, he started to miss bats and he was not playing well for a certain stretch of game. And he just went, he just, 
put that focus that he put into basketball into baseball and you have like you know scouts and gms that are currently in in the um, mlb who are saying like if mj had continued to work at that level that he was working at he could have gone pro in baseball as well and it's just sort of a testament to the competitor that he was well yeah another thing i wanted to talk about was something that we see now in the nba as opposed to how it was back then not even with the rules and like the players and all that but the camaraderie between players with different teams and the episode I'm referencing is the one where they're going with the, all, the Olympic team and how they kind of shunted Isaiah Thomas and just brought on like Magic, Bird, MJ, Scotty, Patrick, and uh, Dennis to the all-star team. And just like, you know, it, it's kind of weird to see how consistent the players are with each other throughout the league because like, you know, you would think it would shift from time to time being that it was like three decades ago. And, but we see now like, you know, with, with, with the banana boat team with like LeBron and Melo and Chris Paul. And like, we see that with uh, MJ and bird and, you know, mm-hmm. Patrick and magic and how they were like close friends with each other and how they kind of pushed each other. They trash talked each other on the court, but they were friends off the court. But the thing I wanted to bring up was the, the, the insane rivalry between the bad boy Pistons and the, and that, and MJ's bulls team and how like, they, how, I guess they wouldn't. They didn't really confirm it, but I'm guessing the reason that they didn't put Isaiah Thomas on the team is because MJ and Scotty were on the Olympic team, and they were they were trying to create chemistry with that Olympic team, and that would kind of inhibit that because of the rivalry they had with each other, especially after they lost to them in the one finals where they didn't shake hands. Yeah, well, like yeah, that that rivalry is one of the most iconic rivalries in NBA history, and especially because it was sort of in the earlier stages of Michael Jordan's career, so he wasn't. You know, he lost that team quite a few times before finally getting the best of them. And, you know, this was a different time in basketball when you could, like, knock players to the ground and you wouldn't get thrown out of the game and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, that that sort of shaped the person that Michael Jordan, the, again, that sort of shaped the player that he ended up being because he took that to heart and started working out. And, like, it's crazy to think that back then in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, players didn't work out the way they do today because now it's, like, every player's in the weight room every single day. And it's just, like, you can't avoid that to think that back then it took, Michael Jordan getting knocked to the floor by Bill Lambier to finally say, okay, I need to hit the weights. <laughs> like that, that is kind of insane to me, but yeah, also like to jump to the dream team side of it. Uh, yeah. They don't really confirm it in the documentary and it's, it's still sort of hanging out there as a rumor, but I think they sort of subtly hint and give us a little bit more of a definitive answer as to, even though Michael Jordan outright denies the fact that he said no to Isaiah being on that team, I, I think we can all pretty much agree on the fact that he, he had a pretty big part and um, yeah, he calls Isaiah him an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Isaiah Thomas is one of the greatest point guards of all time, and especially like you're considering, you know, Magic Johnson's your starting point guard on that team. Isaiah Thomas, in most cases, would be, especially from that era, your second point guard. And mm. the fact that he wasn't on that team, I think, it is pretty shocking and pretty, pretty telling of the sway that MJ had. Similar to bring it to modern times, the way that LeBron shapes a lot of the teams that he plays on today. Right, and yeah, just basing off of that, I want to ask you. You're the basketball guy out of the two of us, and we were talking about this throughout, like maybe two weeks, I think. Now I gave you the question a couple weeks ago. Uh, what's your all-time top ten? Yeah, and I and I did send it to you, so I'm gonna pull it up here. So, I mean, yeah, because I can't really talk on that because I have limited basketball knowledge. I know what's going on in the players. I know who's who and what position they play, but I don't have a complete overview of basketball history like Raj does so I'm hoping that he guys can give you guys some insight if you disagree with him yell at him on Twitter I've already yelled at him because of his decisions and uh we'll see what um he says and uh you can react yeah. to what he says <laughs> yeah please don't yell at me because I think I'm right but uh <laughs> I, I am I'm, de- I'm definitely gonna get people yelling at me about this um 
I'll, I'll say that I feel pretty confident in these that I've chosen because, like I've said, I've gone back in time and watched a lot of games, and and I feel pretty comfortable in saying that um I watch just as much basketball, if not more basketball, than I do movies. So I, I feel like I'm just as formed, if not more informed about basketball than I am about movies. Um, so let me preface by saying that before people start yelling at me because I know there's <laughs> going to be something on here that people are going to yell at me about. Um, but the order that I gave it to to Sam in was LeBron. Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Oscar Robertson, Shaquille O'Neal, Hakeem Olajuwon, Bill Russell, Tim Duncan. And that's my top 10. And, you know, there's a glaring omission. Kobe Bryant, obviously not on there. Um, probably he's, he's top 15. I think he's top 15, but he does not make my top 10, unfortunately. Well, what are your thoughts? well, hold on. Let me ask you. Is this like ability alone or like legacy or influence on the game? Or how did you make your decisions? Everything. I, I try to factor everything as I, that I could into it. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I consider Kobe, I thought Kobe was like solidified top three, but now I've talked to several individuals and they're saying like, no, he's not even top ten, or he's not top. I was like, wow, dude, I had no idea. That's that's how much like how much basketball knowledge I know. Sure. But so, so yeah, it is one thing. You know, I think a lot of people would say that Kobe Bryant, like a lot of people in their opinion, Kobe Bryant is the greatest of all time, and I don't think that's a far off statement because he is one of the greatest competitors of all time. He has that sort of edge of Michael Jordan. Um, he didn't quite have the skill set of Michael Jordan in that. Um, you know, he was not quite as consistent a player he's not quite as consistent a shooter um his winning percentage went down quite late in his careers and I, i'm not i'm not regarding mj's time with the wizards because by that time mj was washed he had taken a couple years off and he was older fat or whatever it may be <laughs> um but but kobe Bryant, if you look at his championship teams he won five rings um but on in the first three rings Shaq was the player of that team i don't care what argument you're going to make Shaq was the player of that team um bar none like there's no competition um when kobe won in 09 and 2010 i believe it was um that was a rivalry that you know that he had with the celtics sort of rejuvenating that that long time nba history um if you look at the analytics and the the hard statistics of that team pal gasol was the best player on that team and pal gasol was mm, the, wow. the, the tipping factor and and sort of kobe because when kobe when it was just kobe um, on that team, they were a 500 team. They were 41 and 41 in 08 or 07, one of those seasons. And Pau Gasol came in and they became a 50-60 win team. Um, Kobe was key in those victories. But um, and, and I would still say, you know, even besides those analytics, I would still say Kobe Bryant was the leader of that team. But Pau Gasol was just as important to that team as Kobe was. So that, that's my that's my argument there. Well, I apologize to our movie listeners. I have no interest in basketball, but you can see that <laughs> Raj is very uh, passionate about basketball. But I just want to say that subtly that you didn't know about this, but I'm actually a pretty big fan of Pau Gasol only because he played for Barcelona. Like he actually played for the Barcelona yeah. basketball team when he yeah. was in Spain. But yeah, yeah I love just Pau wanted Gasol. to get that just get that insight from you. No, that's awesome. Um, I, I love Pagasol, but do you want to kind of give us your closing thoughts on the documentary as a whole now as we close yeah. out? Yeah, this is the first 30 for 30 doc I've actually seen in my life in, as a whole. So this is what makes me like itch to watch the OJ documentary and like actually delve into like the other aspects of the 30 for 30 docs and like in their library. But I really enjoyed this one. I'm glad that I got the chance to watch it, give me perspective on MG and the Bulls and the organization and everything that was going on. There's an entire different conversation to have with a lot of story points of this documentary. So if you want to know more about that, go check out Raj's other podcast, Nothing <laughs> because he's been doing like a, a review every week for each episode. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah.
Yeah, we did like episode or week by week breakdowns, like two episodes at a time, the way they aired. So yeah, you can check that out at Nuts and Bolts Sports. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, and I'm glad that we can sort of lend differing perspectives to this. Whereas like you're coming from this, like basically knowing nothing about any of this, mm-hmm. and I knew like some of it, but I didn't know that, like I said, the behind the scenes aspect of it. So I'm glad that we could sort of lend two different perspectives to the way this documentary is formed, and really how it incite it was uh, insightful for both of us as basketball fans. Because like I said, you're still a basketball fan, even though you don't like you know. You know, you're not sitting down every single night watching. You're still a pretty good basketball <laughs> fan. And I, I think, but I, I think what's so cool about this documentary is that you don't have to be a basketball fan to watch this thing and enjoy it. Right. Um, and I, I don't know if you want to speak to that, any, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I don't go out my out of my way to watch a lot of basketball stuff like Raj does, but I I do like the sport of basketball. I'm in tune to what's going on. But like, if you're a fan of film or you're a fan of documentaries, you should definitely make time to watch this, you know, 30 for 30 documentary because it's like one of the best docs I've seen in my life, honestly. Yeah, it, it's great storytelling, and I highly recommend it. It, it. It'll be worth your time. Ten hours, it is long. I get it. It's a big investment, but it, it is certainly worth your time. Um, but that'll bring us to a close for this episode of Talking Movies. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, Sam, let people know where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter at SamZeroSo, and on my Instagram at SamOsorio, O-S-O-R-I-O. You can find me at RajSaw236. Um, as always, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as sharing it with all your friends and family. Um, we can, you can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the popular platforms. Um, we have something pretty exciting lined up for next week, a discussion that's been long in the making. So uh, we'll be back next week talking, so join us then.